I hope you found Luke 24. Um, Before we dive into our passage of uh, Acts 9, I just wanted to give some context. Uh, You know, as we are plugging along through the book of Acts, uh, it's easy to kind of get um, caught in the trees and miss the forest. And so I want to I give us some context. Would you read with me Luke 24, verses 44 through 49? This is Jesus sitting with his disciples after he has been resurrected and um, shortly before he ascends. He says this, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus unpacks God's sovereign plan of salvation. What was necessary according to God's divine plan. It was necessary that Jesus die as a substitute to save sinners. It was necessary that he rise from the grave conquering sin and death. And now it is necessary, according to God's sovereign plan of salvation, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all nations. The apostles, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, were in the proclamation stage of God's sovereign plan. And today, still... 2,000 years later, you and I are in the proclamation stage of God's divine plan. We see here that the apostles were witnesses. They witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus. And as such, they were the foundation of the church's proclamation. But today, this proclamation stage continues. And as we're walking through Acts, in Acts 9, you can go ahead and find your way there, Acts chapter 9 we're seeing this proclamation stage just breaking ground. Uh, We saw the witness in Jerusalem as the gospel went throughout the city of Jerusalem. And then in Acts 8 and Acts 9, we're seeing the gospel uh, through the persecution that started with Stephen. It's becoming spread throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And it's ultimately going to be on its way to the ends of the earth. At the beginning of Acts 9, we were introduced to the last apostle, Saul. In the first half of this chapter, we saw him spectacularly converted. He was the one who was causing suffering. And he was converted from one who caused Christians to suffer into someone who would suffer as a Christian for the name of Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Acts chapter 9. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We said a couple weeks ago as we looked at that passage that suffering was necessary for Jesus to purchase salvation for the world. And suffering is necessary to get the good news of Jesus' salvation to the world. And this is a lesson that Saul learns very quickly. As we come to our passage today, what we're going to see in this text is that as Saul baby Christian as he is, as Saul boldly proclaims the name he once persecuted, he is rejected by those to whom he once belonged, and he is accepted by those he once sought to destroy. Would you stand with me, if you're able, and let's read together Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19, and we'll read through verse 30. 
starting uh, halfway through the verse there. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So... He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. From the beginning of Acts chapter 9, to the point that we just read, a massive change has occurred in this man named Saul. Things that he used to love, he no longer loves. People he used to hate, he now loves. People who used to love him, no longer love him. And the message that he used to silence, he now proclaims. What reason can we give for such a massive change? To what do we owe this incredible transformation that has occurred in Saul, the great persecutor of the church? Who is now being, whose life is now being threatened. Well, we can sum up what changed in Saul with three words. Jesus is Lord. That's what changed in Saul. Jesus is now his Lord. And because Jesus is his Lord, it changes what Saul lives for. It changes what Saul loves. The truth is, as humans, we live for what we love. We live for what we love. If we love praise, then we will live to preserve the approval of people. We'll change our words, our actions, our behaviors, so as to protect and preserve the praise and approval and affirmation of people. If we love our lives, if we love living more than anything, then we will go to great lengths to preserve our lives, to avoid risk, to do things to try and extend our life. We live for what we love. It's also true that when we love something, we Talk about it. You could say we proclaim to others that which we love. When we love something, we celebrate it. When we love something about someone else, we celebrate it. We live for what we love. But as we see in Saul here, what we need to recognize is that when Jesus saves someone, he immediately gets to work changing what we love. Jesus immediately gets to work conforming us into his image. We love less and less what we used to love before we knew Christ, and we love more and more that which 
Christ loves. More and more we love God with more of our heart and more of our soul and more of our strength. More and more we love neighbor as ourself. More and more we love his holiness. More and more we love his purposes. When Jesus saves someone, he changes their loves. And so what I want us to see, the central truth that I want us to take away from this passage this morning is that if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, then Jesus is Lord of our loves. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, then Jesus is Lord of our loves. I pray that we'll see that truth as we walk through our text together. Uh, you probably noticed this text can be divided into two halves. One half takes place in Damascus. One half takes place in Jerusalem. First, we're going to see Saul rejected by Jews in Damascus. And then second, we're going to see Saul accepted by the disciples in Jerusalem. But first of all, starting in verse 19, we see Saul rejected by Jews in Damascus. Now, you might recall Saul was going to Damascus. The reason why he was going there was to arrest Christians. But by the time he got there, he was being baptized by those same Christians and hanging out with them and fellowshipping with them. Look at verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The very people he came to persecute, he was now hanging out with and learning from. And again, he was baptized by them. And as he now identified as a disciple of Jesus, he wasted no time in fulfilling the calling that Jesus had placed on his life. Look at verse 20. And immediately, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Jesus had called Saul to be his chosen instrument to carry his name to the children of Israel. So Saul immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. So the synagogue was a place that Jews got together to learn from the scriptures. They would learn through teaching, through dialogue. This is the place where they went to learn. And so it would have been a familiar place to Saul. Uh, the people at the synagogue would have naturally expected someone like Saul coming from Jerusalem to come and join them at the synagogue. But what no one expected was what came out of Saul's mouth once he got to the synagogue. The message that Jesus is the Son of God. This was a radical message to come from the mouth of someone who was supposed to be a Jew. Because the Son of God, to say that Jesus, this man from Nazareth, who we heard was crucified in Jerusalem, to say that this Jesus is the Son of God is to say he is equal with God. You can see that in John chapter 5 and verse 18. But not only that, the Son of God is a title for the Messiah. So to say Jesus is the Son of God is to say he is the one who was born to sit on the throne of David for all of eternity. He is the one who God has appointed with all authority in heaven and on earth. You can see that in Luke 1 and Romans 1. This is a massive claim. This is something that is going to stir up the synagogue. And sure enough, we see the response in verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring him bound before the chief priests? These Jews knew who Saul was. They knew, they thought they knew where he stood when it came to this name Jesus. They had heard he was coming from Jerusalem to Damascus just to round up people who carried the name of Jesus. Now he's coming into the synagogue and saying Jesus is the son of God. The Jews are not sure what to make of Saul. But that didn't faze him. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Despite the confusion, despite the fact that this is a total 
change in reputation, total change in what Saul is known by, Saul just continues to grow. He continues to develop in his faith. He continues to learn more about Jesus, strengthen in following him. And the Jews are floored. They're absolutely floored by this. Because not only was Jesus just, or excuse me, was Saul claiming that Jesus was the Christ. He was, did you notice that, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Well, how do you prove that Jesus is the Christ? From the scriptures. This is the example we see in Luke 24. We read it earlier. Jesus, as he was proving that he was the Christ to his disciples, he opened up the scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. And he demonstrated that his death and resurrection were necessary. He demonstrated from scripture that he was the Christ. So, but not only is that the example of Jesus, this is what we're going to continue to see from Saul, later known as Paul, um, as he goes to the synagogue. Uh, flip ahead a few chapters to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So no doubt what we see later from Saul Paul is what we are seeing going on here in Acts 9 at the synagogue as Saul is proving that Jesus is the Christ. See, Saul, from a young age, was a student of the Scriptures. He was well-versed in the Scriptures. He was taught them all of his life. He knew the scriptures inside and out, or so he thought. Because once Jesus opened his eyes to who he was, all of a sudden, Saul, who knew everything about the scriptures, realized he knew nothing about the scriptures. Because he missed the main point of the scriptures, which was Jesus. Now that he knows Jesus, he sees how the Old Testament points to him. He sees how Jesus was the necessary fulfillment of the scriptures. And so he, with his eyes wide open, goes to the synagogue, to these people studying the scriptures, and says, look, these scriptures are testifying about Jesus, that he is the Christ. He proves to them that Jesus is the center of the scriptures. Well, all of this leads to the Jews going from being amazed to being angry. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, uh, when Luke says many days passed, uh, many means many. Um, it, it was as much as three years, actually, we find out later in Scripture. Um, there was three years from the time that Saul was converted to when he goes to Jerusalem, as is recorded here. Uh, but the point is, Saul had taught a lot, and the more that he taught, the more he just became a burr in the saddle of these Jews. As Saul boldly proclaimed the name he once persecuted, he was rejected by those to whom he once belonged. They plot to kill him, but Jesus sovereignly protects him. Look at verses 24 and 25. But their plot became known to Saul. How do you like that? They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So the Jews made a plan to kill him. They were going to catch him coming in or out of the city. There's only one way in, one way out. It's through the gates. So they were going to catch Saul either going in or coming out by night. But Saul learns of this plan, and his disciples help him escape, not by the gates, but through 
the, an opening in the city wall, let him down through a, in a basket, and he is off to Jerusalem, escaping the plan of the Jews. It, and before we move on, we don't need to pass too quickly over that phrase, his disciples. But I noticed I, I caught myself misreading that earlier. Saul's disciples. He, he's only been a believer for maybe three years. But Saul already has been making disciples, carrying out the calling that Jesus has given to him. So in this scene, as Saul is rejected by Jews in Damascus, what we see is that Saul was faithful to fulfill his calling. He was faithful to carry Jesus' name to the children of Israel as Jesus called him to do. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, Jesus is Lord of our loves. And what we see here in Saul is a man for whom Jesus was Lord and a man in whom Jesus had changed loves. We see in Saul a great example of what it means to have Jesus as our Lord. In particular, what we see in this scene is that Saul was willing to suffer the loss of things he once loved. Part of the way that Jesus changes our loves when he is our Lord is he leads us to give up things that we once loved. Let me offer two points of application based on what we've looked at so far. First of all, if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love proclaiming him more than we love preserving the approval of people. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love proclaiming him more than we love preserving the approval of people. Again, the synagogue had been a safe place for Saul. Saul knew how to give the people what they wanted to hear. But Saul went in and he did not preach in order to get amens. He didn't preach for an attaboy. He didn't preach a message that would make mom and dad proud. He preached about the Lord that he now loved. What does it look like to love preserving the approval of people more than we love proclaiming Jesus? It's when we have an opportunity to honor Jesus by talking about him, pointing to the hope that is found in him. But we remain silent because we fear being rejected. We fear being dismissed, fear being made fun of, called ignorant. It's one way, but let me offer another example. It may also, that is preserving the approval of people rather than proclaiming Jesus, it, it might look like saying something that, that makes us feel like we're bold, but we're really just preaching to the choir. We can say something that's true about Jesus, but we know that somebody already agrees with it. And so rather than say, say the thing that is true, that is offensive, we, we kind of set that aside and we just stick with the thing that we know is going to be well-received because we love the approval of man more than we love to proclaim the truth about Jesus. I'll tell you, as a preacher, this is a common temptation for me a common struggle for me. Uh, you know, there's, there's been a couple of times that I have uh, preached from this pulpit about things that the world loves uh, that uh, I know that the people who are in this room don't love. So I preach against those things. And I've had people come up to me afterward and say, wow, you sure are brave to say that. No, I'm not. I'm preaching to the choir. Everyone in the room agrees with me. If I wanted to be brave, I would preach against the things that people in this room love. 
that we shouldn't be loving. It's when I speak the truth of Scripture that I know goes directly against things that are held dear by those of us in this room, that's when I have fear and trepidation behind this pulpit. That's when I don't want to come down to the front and talk to people afterward. I just want to scurry on to the back. Because we can fool ourselves into thinking we're being bold in our proclamation of Jesus when really we're just preaching to the choir and avoiding the truth about Jesus. Well, so that's a couple of ways that it looks like to preserve the approval of people rather than to proclaim Jesus. But what does it look like to love proclaiming Jesus instead of loving to preserve uh, the approval of, uh, of people? Well, first of all, we'll point people to Jesus even if they don't want to hear about it. Now, kindly, <laughs> lovingly, but unashamed. Because we love Jesus more than we love maintaining someone's fleeting approval. What does it look like to love proclaiming Jesus more than we love preserving approval? We'll talk about Jesus as revealed in Scripture, not the Jesus that is culturally acceptable. Uh, Especially in our culture. I don't mean culture like pop culture. I mean Stephenville, Texas culture. Pretty much everyone has some version of Jesus that they like. They have some version of Jesus that they accept and that they honor and they love. But if we're not careful, we'll just stick to talking about that version of Jesus instead of the true Jesus. What it means to love proclaiming Jesus is to love proclaiming him as he is revealed in Scripture, not just as he is culturally accepted. So a second point of application, as we consider this idea that Saul had Jesus as Lord, and that meant that he was willing to suffer the loss of things that he once loved. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love proclaiming him more than we love preserving our own lives. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love proclaiming him more than we love preserving our own lives. Now, as you hear that, you might say, wait a minute. Didn't Saul just go to great lengths to preserve his life in the text we just read? And we've already read the whole passage. You know, he's going to do the same thing in Jerusalem just a few verses later. So how do you see that? Him escaping out of an opening in the wall to escape death. How do you get from there to a point about Loving, proclaiming Jesus more than we love preserving our own lives. Well, let me explain. Saul escaped death because he loved to proclaim Jesus. Not because he wanted to preserve his own life. Saul escaped death because he loved to proclaim Jesus. Not because he wanted to preserve his own life. Well, how do I know that? If Saul loved preserving his own life more than anything, he would have gone and fled to a safe place and he would have stopped speaking such a controversial message. But what does Saul do when he escapes from Damascus? He goes to Jerusalem, the epicenter of the persecution of Christians, And he preaches boldly in the name of Jesus there. The very message that is being persecuted in Jerusalem. That's what he goes to do. Why? Because he loved proclaiming Jesus most of all. He was not loving to preserve his life most of all. See, the example that we see from the disciples throughout Scripture is that their focus is on proclaiming. Their focus is on proclaiming Jesus. It's not on keeping or losing their life. It's just on proclaiming Jesus. And what that means is that sometimes they risk death in order to proclaim Jesus. Sometimes they escape death in order to proclaim Jesus. In fact, sometimes they make that decision on their own. And sometimes Jesus makes it for them. 
we'll see a couple of times in uh, chapters very soon after this one where Jesus miraculously helps his witnesses escape prison so that they can go proclaim his name. But the point is that they love proclaiming Jesus and that's their focus. And whether they live or die is up to the Lord. See, if we get it the other way around, if we love preserving our life more than we love proclaiming Jesus, the the truth is, we still may proclaim Jesus to a point. We'll proclaim Jesus as long as the risk is low enough, as long as the country we're doing it in is safe enough, as long as the audience is not too hostile But if we love preserving our lives more than we love proclaiming Jesus, eventually we're going to compromise on the truth of the gospel for the sake of preserving our own lives. We can sum it up this way. We may, at times, avoid death in order to proclaim the gospel. But we must not avoid proclaiming the gospel in order to escape death. Let me say that again. We may at times avoid death in order to proclaim the gospel, but we must not stop proclaiming the gospel in order to escape death. Well, so we've seen Saul rejected by the Jews in Damascus. And starting in verse 26 next, we see Saul accepted by the disciples in Jerusalem. Well, we're going to. But it doesn't start out that way. Look at verse 26 as Saul flees to Jerusalem. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Man, This guy just can't win. No matter where he goes, they don't know what to make of him. Because after all, these believers in Jerusalem, more than anyone, knew what Saul was capable of. They knew what he thought about Christians. He was the Osama bin Laden of Jerusalem for Christians. The Jews didn't know what to make of Saul. Now the Christians didn't know what to make of Saul. But thankfully... Saul found an advocate in Barnabas. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas, we were first introduced to in chapter 4 of Acts. You might remember he uh, sold a piece of property and uh, gave the proceeds to the church. He did so honestly, as opposed to Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit about it. But Barnabas, we were told at that time, his name means son of encouragement. And what we see in verse 27 is Barnabas living up to his name. This son of encouragement celebrates what God has done in Saul. And this son of encouragement encourages unity within the disciples of Jesus there in Jerusalem. Apparently, the disciples in Jerusalem were persuaded by Barnabas because in verse 28, what we see is that Saul then went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He joined with them in carrying the name of Jesus, as they had already been doing, he then comes and does with them. And just as he had done in Damascus, preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now again, here in Jerusalem, he preaches boldly in the name of Jesus. But, like in Damascus, he meets resistance again in verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So the the Hellenists, those were Greek-speaking Jews. And you might uh, even know that Saul uh, was, uh, his background as a Jew was he was a Greek-speaking Jew. So he's kind of going to uh, his own people. But this is also the same group of people that Stephen 
disputed with, which ultimately led to Stephen being put to death. So this is not a warm audience for the gospel. But, again, what Saul loves most is proclaiming Jesus, not preserving his own life. He's not afraid of losing the approval of his own people. He's not afraid of losing his own life. But again, Jesus sovereignly works in order to help Saul live to preach another day. In verse 30, And when the brothers learned about this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. His newfound community helped him flee from this um, plot against his life so that he would live to preach another day. As we see Saul in Jerusalem welcomed into the fold of the disciples, these disciples treated their former enemy Saul as a beloved brother. And they sent him off to Tarsus, which is actually his hometown, and we'll see him there uh, whenever the the story picks back up with Saul uh, in chapter 11. But if we boil down what we've seen in chapter 9, starting in verse 19, all the way to this section, again, as Saul boldly proclaimed the name he once persecuted, he was rejected by those to whom he once belonged, and he was accepted by those he once sought to destroy. Because if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, Jesus is Lord of our loves. I want to consider just two more points of application from the section we just looked at. We saw in that first half a couple of loves that we give up whenever Jesus is Lord. But let's look positively at a couple of the loves that Jesus fosters in us if he is Lord. First of all, if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love boldly proclaiming his name. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love boldly proclaiming his name. Just consider Luke's description of Saul's preaching ministry here in this passage. Verse 20, brand new Christian, immediately proclaim, he is the son of God. Verse 22, he goes to the synagogue and he proves from the scriptures, Jesus is the Christ. Verses 27 and 28, he was preaching boldly in Damascus. Then he goes to Jerusalem, he preaches boldly in the name of Jesus there. Well, where does that come from? Where does that bold proclamation, that immediate, clear, convicted, passionate conviction, where does that proclamation come from? Well, I'll tell you where it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from guilt. It's not like Saul sat around all day saying, I know I should do this more. And maybe if I can just get my guilt to rise to the right level, then I'll start proclaiming Jesus. No, that's not where it came from. It didn't come from trying really hard, mustering up the strength and like, oh, today today I'm going to go proclaim Jesus. I'm just going to work myself up to this. I'm going to try really, really hard to go proclaim Jesus. That's not where it comes from. It doesn't come from practicing a a strategy or rehearsing a script. No, this bold, immediate, clear, passionate proclamation of Jesus came because Saul had beheld how glorious Jesus is. This comes from being overwhelmed and captivated by the grace of Jesus in the gospel. Saul declared that Jesus was the Son of God because he had seen that he is the Son of God, the glorious, crucified for sinners, risen, conquering the grave, exalted to the right hand of the Father, reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth, mighty to save all who call on his name. He had seen how glorious Jesus was, and he had to tell people how great Jesus is as the Son of God. The reason why Saul proved Christ, proved that Jesus was the Christ, was because he had seen that he was the Christ in the scriptures. 
He had looked at the scriptures and seen how glorious Jesus was. That Jesus was the offspring of the woman who came to crush the head of the serpent. That he was the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. That Jesus was the offspring of David who would sit on his throne and reign in peace and righteousness and justice for all of eternity. That Jesus was the one whom Isaiah said was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That he was the one who would give water to anyone who thirsts, that Jesus is the one who would proclaim liberty to the captives, that Jesus is the one who would take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh, that Jesus is the one who would pour out the Holy Spirit on all who came to him. Saul, Saul saw all of that, and he became overwhelmed by how amazing Jesus is, and what came out was bold, immediate, clear, compelling, confounding, proclamation about the Lord that he now loved more than anything. Bold proclamation comes from beholding the beauty of Jesus. So, if we look at our lives and we don't see bold proclamation, The answer is not making ourselves more guilty, trying harder, practicing more. What we need to do is spend more time with Jesus. We need to see him. We need to look at who he is according to the scriptures. We need to Repent more and learn the beauty of submitting to him as Lord. We need to bow more to him and experience the flourishing that comes from having Jesus as king. And the more that we experience Jesus, the more we see him in scripture, the more we see how satisfying he is to submit to, the more that we have our love increase for Jesus in our hearts, as that love increases, so will our desire to see more people know Jesus. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love boldly proclaiming his name. Lastly, if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love celebrating what he is doing in his disciples. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love celebrating what he is doing in his disciples. I get this from the example of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. In this passage, Barnabas gives us an amazing example of what true biblical encouragement looks like. When Jesus is Lord of your heart. Uh, I'd like to offer uh, to us a a few definitions of some terms. Uh, It comes from a pastor uh, in the uh, Round Rock, Georgetown area named John Payne. Um, I was able to sit in on a uh, session. And um, some of our worship team also uh, got to sit in on this. I can't remember who all. But he gave a session on encouragement. And I'd like to share the definition of encouragement that he Uh, he offers here. Encouragement celebrates God's grace toward his people and inspires or honors godliness in his people. The intended effect of encouragement is that Christians love God more, trust God more, and serve God more. So encouragement celebrates God's grace toward his people. So encouragement, truthfully, is not a a, a pat on the back. It's an act of worship toward God, celebrating his grace in the life of someone. Uh, Encouragement inspires godliness. So if you're encouraging someone toward godliness, it's the hope of inspiring godliness. Or it might honor godliness, uh, affirming something that is the fruit of God's grace. So that's biblical encouragement. That's what we see in Barnabas. Let me offer a couple of other terms. One of the things that encouragement is not 
is flattery. Flattery is making people feel good about their lives or about us regardless of the real state of their relationship with God. Flattery is positivity without objectivity. It's feel-good words without truth. Encouragement, biblical, truthful encouragement, exalts God and honors and motivates godliness, whereas flattery exalts self-esteem and honors and motivates self-adoration and self-deceit. The opposite of flattery is cynicism. Cynicism is viewing life through a lens of doubt. Doubting God's purposes, doubting people's motives or growth, doubting any hope for the future. Cynicism is negativity without objectivity. Flattery is positivity without objectivity. Cynicism is negativity without objectivity. Cynicism refuses to see grace and godliness or to exercise love that hopes all things. Cynicism exalts avoiding disappointment and self-protection. So why do I bring this up? Encouragement, flattery, cynicism. Well, because I don't think it's a stretch to say that the disciples in Jerusalem were cynical. The disciples in Jerusalem were cynical about Saul. Look again at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They were afraid of him. They were, as this definition reads, they were avoiding disappointment. They were exalting self-protection. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. They were doubting any hope for the future. They doubted that God could actually change someone as evil as Saul. They were cynical. But how does Barnabas respond? Not with flattery. Barnabas doesn't hear this and say, oh, come on, give him another chance. You'll see he's a really good guy. No, what does he do? He responds with truthful, biblical encouragement. Look at what he says. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of of Jesus. Barnabas celebrated what Jesus had done in Saul. He had celebrated the grace of God toward this soul, and he honored the godly fruit that had come from Saul's encounter with Jesus. Barnabas gives us this example of what it means to have truthful biblical encouragement, because if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love celebrating what he is doing in his disciples. Not with empty flattery, but we'll also avoid this doubt and cynicism and this failure to expect that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So let me ask you, in light of this biblical encouragement, and in light of seeing what is not biblical encouragement, do you lean more toward cynicism or flattery? Do you tend to lean toward negativity without objectivity or positivity without objectivity? Both are problematic because neither is rooted in the truth. One is just all smiles, no substance. One is all doubts with closed eyes to what God is really doing. If you lean more toward being cynical, doubting that God can really change people, doubting that God can really do what he says he's going to do. Let me encourage you, pray for God to open your eyes. 
that you might see that he really is at work. That that person that you've been cynical toward, doubting that God is really at work, that he is actually doing a work of grace in that person's heart. May God open your eyes to see who he is, what he is capable of, what he can do, that your cynicism might be dissolved and you might see the truth of God's powerful grace. Do you lean more toward flattery? Just wanting to keep spirits up, being positive all the time, regardless of what's true? Well, let me encourage you to pray that God would open your eyes to what is real. Because there are things to be encouraged about. God is at work. But don't settle for an empty feeling. Celebrate the substance of God's grace. And whether the Lord is taking you to encouragement from cynicism or from flattery, when you see, when the Lord opens your eyes to see who he is and what he is up to, start encouraging. Start celebrating what God is doing. Start celebrating what fruit is coming out of people's lives. And because when we start encouraging and celebrating what God is up to, that encouragement just starts to compound. The more we see, the more we will continue to see. Remember, the intended effect of encouragement is that Christians love God more, trust God more, and serve God more. And the more that we start encouraging as we see God at work, the more that intended effect will take root in our hearts and the hearts of the people that we encourage. And the effect in Acts 9 among these disciples was unity, love, greater fruitfulness in ministry, greater multiplication of ministry. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will love celebrating what he is doing in his disciples. Because if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, he is Lord of our loves. If Jesus is Lord of our hearts, we will give up the things that we used to love, like preserving the approval of people, or even preserving our own lives. Instead, we will love what he loves. We'll love boldly proclaiming his name. We'll love celebrating what he is doing. And like Saul, as we live for Jesus as Lord and love what he loves, we may be rejected by people to whom we once belonged. We may start loving people that we didn't think it was possible for us to love. Why? Because a new Lord means new loves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts. I pray that the example that we have seen in Saul, the example we've seen in Barnabas, the example we've seen of the Jews who rejected Saul and the believers who accepted Saul. Lord, I pray that this passage of your word would sink deep into our hearts. Lord, that we would be more like Christ as a result of this passage of scripture, shaping our hearts more and more in conformity to your will. Lord, I pray that we would continually love less the things of our former life, And that we would continually love more the things that you love. That more and more we would see in our hearts Christ being formed. So that we would increasingly love like he loves. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.